Hello, and welcome to the Herbal Hour Podcast. Today we have one of my absolute favorite episodes of all time with Alexander Hein, who is a close friend. He is the founder of Modern Health Monk, a company that helps people lose weight, and he just started his Chinese medicine clinic in LA this year. He's a remarkable man, and we talk about entrepreneurship, starting a business, motivation, mindset, all the things that many people are interested in, especially if they want to start something new or turn their creative talent into something that could actually become their lives. This conversation was great, insightful, and also pretty funny at certain points. Alexander Hein has a doctorate in Chinese medicine, sometimes called traditional Chinese medicine, although he practices from the classical Chinese standpoint. In a few short years, he was able to completely retire from his nine to five job as a teacher, start a company and completely sustain himself with it. He has a few hundred thousand uh, subscribers on his YouTube channel, Modern Health Monk. Big inspiration to me and of great help. Thanks for tuning in to Dr. Dan's Herbal Hour podcast, the natural medicine podcast, the alternative health podcast, the podcast for all kinds of healing from an open mind. And I am the host, Dr. Dan. Before we begin this episode, I wanted to tell you guys about a special offer. As many of you know, I am a naturopathic doctor who graduated last year from National University of Natural Medicine in Portland. And this year, likely in the next few months, I am opening up my naturopathic medical clinic, focusing specifically on mental wellness, chronic disease, hormones, endocrine conditions, and all the diseases of civilization, aka those diseases that lifestyle, herbs, mindfulness, exercise, things of that matter are incredibly effective for. My biggest passion is mental, emotional, spiritual health. And I've been studying the works of Carl Jung and following that tradition over the last decade. So I utilize techniques like mindfulness meditations, dream therapies, dream interpretation, art therapy, and all the other techniques that really help people find the meaning in their lives, get on track, harmonize their relationships, their minds, and live a beautiful life filled with happiness as everyone deserves. These times have been incredibly difficult for many people and very stressful. I know for myself as well. And mental health and wellness of the mind are usually topics that are not talked about enough. And there's a huge shortage of mental health practitioners. So that's part of uh, the reason why I chose to go down this path, not only because it's a big uh, passion of mine, but also because I know it is the way that I could be of greatest service to people. So I'm starting that clinic within the next few months in the Oregon, Washington area. So if you're somebody who is interested or wants more information about this, you can send me an email at drdan at ktherbs.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-D-A-N at letter K, letter T, herbs.com to be put on the wait list to ask for more information. Or if you just had a question about the podcast, just wanted to show support. If this is your first time tuning into the Herbal Hour podcast, aka Dr. Dan's Herbal Hour podcast, Natural Medicine, this is what you can expect. The conversations are with health experts, mainly in the field of alternative health. So we have episodes with 
yoga teachers, energy healers, naturopaths, herbalists, acupuncturists, people who practice Chinese medicine, martial artists, any and every topic related to health in any manner, because holistic health is about all the aspects of health. This podcast is certified organic, non-GMO, local, and gluten-free. You can also find the Herbal Hour podcast on YouTube where we have full videos, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts, or as it used to be called, iTunes, which most of our listeners are on. So if you are on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it, please, please, please leave a review. Give us how many stars you think we deserve because it helps more people hear this podcast. I originally started this podcast for a very specific reason. Besides the fact that I really love talking about natural, holistic, alternative health, and I learned so much, I also started this podcast to help spread the word of natural healing, holistic health, and alternative medicine. Because unfortunately, in the United States, in our culture, um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of opinions, and sometimes they're not so accurate. On top of that, there's a general attitude of speaking of holistic health as if it's woo-woo, so to speak. And I think so many people would benefit from the idea that for anything related to your health, what you eat matters, herbs you can take for that, that your mental state, how you live your life, how you react to things affects your health in many ways and that there are so many tools out there to use for people who feel like they've been through the conventional system and have not gotten the benefit that they desired. So I made the Herbal Hour with hopes of getting that information more out there uh, with dozens of interviews with naturopathic doctors such as myself, other alternative health practitioners. I hope to dispel these myths that people have about what natural healing is, and really just to talk deeply about the things that are most interesting within these fields for people who have an interest in this, uh, for their own health or for people they love's health, or for practitioners of any field of medicine. I know we have a lot of uh, nurses listening to this podcast to give that kind of information in a casual, fun format that maybe you didn't get at school or maybe the field doesn't talk too much about. So that was always my aim of starting this podcast. And thank you guys so much for listening. The future of healthcare, in my opinion, is integrative. It's holistically minded, meaning all parts of a person's life, their mind, their body, their emotions, their habits are all part of their healing. And it is founded in nature because nature is what heals. Uh, some people maybe think that this substance or that heals, but really it's just the body's response, which is what heals somebody. That's holistic medicine in a nutshell. It's looking at all the factors that play into health, and there's so many. Not just the physical aspects, but the other more subtle aspects as well. I appreciate our longtime listeners so, so much. We are about to hit 20,000 downloads in a little over a year, which is absolutely amazing to me. A lot of exciting episodes upcoming. I have some naturopathic doctors that I'm going to be speaking to in the coming weeks. Um, it's going to be a real treat. 
Also, if you're one of the longtime listeners, you might remember a segment that I used to do for the Herbal Hour podcast called Story Hour, where I would share my favorite sections out of books on mythology, spirituality, mindfulness, psychology, etc., all of my interests in holistic medicine. But I had to stop doing that for copyright reasons. However, I'm super excited to announce that I will be doing podcast episodes where I talk about in-depth research about herbs, the traditional uses, the energetics, episodes about the history of plant use, uh, shamanic traditions, and my favorite topic of all time, the myths and folklore behind herb use, uh, which has such a rich history that is not often talked about in the space of herbalism. Usually it's about the medicinal benefits. However, some of these herbs have incredibly fascinating uh, myths and folklore associated with them. For example, elderberry. The tree that elderberry comes from, called the elder tree, was widely held to be a guardian between life and death. During medieval times, there was superstitions to take elderberry twigs and bury them in graves. People had a deep respect, reverence for the elder tree and believed uh, a spirit called the Hildmore, which is kind of like the elder mother translated, lived within the tree and that you could never cut this tree down without asking for permission. These will be shorter episodes anywhere between uh, five minutes to 30 minutes, not like these full-length podcasts that I do with guests. So I hope you guys enjoy that because I certainly enjoy making them. Now for our herbal and plant lovers out there, for the month of March, my company, Kentaros Therapeutics, which creates herbal supplements, namely tinctures, which are herbal extracts, very concentrated form of the medicinal compounds in herbs that you may have used in teas or seen in other supplements. For the month of March, we are doing a buy one, get one free on all of our tinctures. We have organic herbal blends that help with allergies, that help with uh, cycles and hormones for females, for stress and energy, for mood, uh, for sleep, for pain, all of the major aspects of people's health that I hear from clients and patients all the time, I made special formulas containing synergistic blends of herbs all working together based on what is most effective, researched, and some of my personal favorites and those I've heard from others. So this is how you get that free tincture. You go on to ktherbs.com, letter K, letter T, and when you go into the shopping cart, there is a section for coupon or discount code, and you enter the code PODCAST, spelled just like that, with no capitals. There will be 10 available coupons for people using that code to get any one tincture for free after you buy one. This is amazing if you find a tincture you like for yourself, and also one that is just perfect for a loved one, a friend, or somebody you know who has some way that they could be naturally supported with herbs. There are only 10 coupons, and it will last until the end of March. 
So be sure to check that out on k2herbs.com if that's something that interests you. We use all organic herbs. I personally make them myself in a commercial kitchen, and they're flavored with honey. We also have alcohol-free blends, which are made with glycerin and are very delicious. They're kind of like a syrup, great for kids or people who don't think that all herbs are delicious like I do. Um, especially people who are not that familiar with herbal medicine. That could be one of the most off-putting aspects of it. So I've always aimed to make these blends very delicious. We use all organic herbs from local farms in Oregon, and we always do free shipping. If you live in the Oregon area, in May, we are actually going to be at a vendor event in Silverton, Oregon, called the Oregon Crafters Market, where we've had an absolute blast serving these tinctures to the community and allowing people to get free samples, try them out, and really ask questions and learn about what herbs are for what and which herbs could possibly benefit them. Now, one last thing before we start this episode with Alexander Hine, entrepreneur, founder of Modern Health Monk, an absolutely phenomenal man. And I personally think a little bit of a sage, especially when it comes to business matters. In the few months before I start my clinic here in Oregon, Washington area, I have been offering wellness consults for people. And I wanted to give you a free initial wellness consult. It's a 15 minute consult where we can talk about your health from a natural holistic standpoint. So I focus in on herbs formulas, different supplements, what they do, the research, diets, things that will get you moving and keep your health in tip-top shape, dream therapy. Maybe you had a wild dream that you just know is significant, but you're not sure what it means. I do uh, dream interpretation and also teach mindfulness techniques. The first wellness consult is free and there's absolutely no commitment to follow up with the advanced consults or the premium packages. Uh, you can access this on drdans.org. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-D-A-N-S.org and book your free consult today. So if you have a health goal that you want to support naturally, or you just wanted to learn more about an herb or what a supplement does. Maybe you read an article or it's the newest fad and you want to get a little bit more information. That's something that I can help you out with. In these wellness consults, I will not be diagnosing, treating, or prescribing any conditions. That is something that I will be doing in my naturopathic medical clinic within the next few months. For these online consults, I focus in on learning your story giving you the wellness guidance that you may be seeking, especially during this time when it is so difficult or incredibly costly to receive these kinds of services. Thank you so much if you listened through this whole introduction, and I appreciate all the support you guys give me and my continuing ability to do my work, which is to help people heal in fundamental aspects, mind, body, and spirit. If you are in the field of natural alternative health, whether you're a massage therapist, herbalist, naturopath, psychologist, um, MD, DO, email me at 
drdan at ktherbs.com. And I'd love to have you on the show as a guest so we can talk about whatever topic inspires you most and share that information with others. If you missed anything that was interesting to you, all links will be in the show notes to this episode. Now, without further ado, let's get into this week's episode with Dr. Alexander Hine, Oriental Medicine Doctor and Licensed Acupuncturist in California. Sir, Dr. Alex, we're here today to talk about the business side of starting a clinic, starting a practice, anything health-related along those lines. So we were talking a little bit before over the phone about some things you were doing as you're starting up your clinic and seeing uh, patients, what's your overall uh, plan? Like, how do you think about, you know, getting more clients, getting more patients? I know you teach a lot of uh, business classes. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing is you have to figure out, uh, I guess, a marketing channel that you actually like to do. I mean, at the end of the day, like it, it doesn't matter how good you are if no one can find you. And I'm actually kind of surprised by the number of people that are good at what they do or great at what they do and not that busy and not that financially successful. So, you know, I think at the beginning, it's just purely about getting people to find you. Um, you know, it depends. Like if you show up in a new town, is it, it depends on how much competition there is. It depends on how those people are finding patients. Um, it depends on, I mean, there's a lot of factors, but it, it's so dependent on the person and their specialty and the scenario and the exact moment in time. And if it's coronavirus, you know, or have you lost all your main channels of marketing? Like word of mouth is in person. So what are you going to do? Right. That changes a lot of things. So I think it depends a lot on the situation. Mm. What are some uh, tips for increasing your reach or, or getting kind of your name out there, as you were mentioning, which is the big issue for people starting out? What are some things that you do that you think are helpful? I mean, Honestly, the main strategy that I'm going to use that I think a lot of people should be using is just trying to build a strong friend group. Uh, You know, people call it their network, but I mean, I think the people who have probably done the quickest job of having regular patients are the people who jumped into communities already. So whether that meant going home and you have a big extended family, whether that means your church group, whether that means a martial arts class or yoga community or a salsa class, somewhere you volunteer, I think the biggest thing is it's just an extension of kind of your existing community. So if you have no existing community, then it's going to be a lot harder because then you have to figure out, well, where am I going to find that? So I I kind of view finding patients almost in the same way that dating ideally should happen, like in the old days. You know, it's a weird phenomenon now in the modern world where you have all these people that move to a new city and they can open up an app and they can end up getting a boyfriend or girlfriend while they have no friends. Mm. So you've bypassed an essential human step, which is building your community and your tribe. And you've skipped to now I have a significant relationship and I have no, you know, no tie to my tribe here locally. So it's a weird kind of thing. And I think that the healthier way to do it, and I guess how it's been probably for thousands of years, is that there would be no way to meet someone unless it was through people. And Mm. I think ideally for getting patients, it should be the same way. You, you know, like you are the country, the town, the village doctor. And because you're a central part of the community, it's just natural that people are going to come to you for whatever you're, you can do for them. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point with uh, networks and communities in these times are often electronic. They're over Zoom. They're over YouTube, 
Facebook, social media, et cetera, where people are getting their main social interaction, especially now during quarantine times uh, through these uh, electronic means. And obviously there's some element of connection that's lost. It's mm -hmm. so much harder to connect with somebody over these uh, forms of media. A lot of times, you know, messages are missed, contexts are missed. Like if you ever texted somebody and uh, you thought they were really angry at you, but they really weren't, it's just because the medium kind of limits the natural, like even we're doing this video right now and we're talking, but like if we were in person, we'd it'd be easier to like read each other's body language and uh, kind of flow the conversation. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, how do you increase that level of connection over these uh, platforms? Like you have uh, uh, YouTube channels. How do you increase your engagement and your connection over this fundamentally somewhat separated medium? How do you make people feel like, you know, you're their friend or they're part of your community, that kind of thing? I mean, I think there's a lot of ways, but the big thing I think you're talking about is engagement, right? Mm -hmm. So you can become more connected. Like I think in general, the rules of connection are the same one-to-one, -one, which is we usually feel connected to people that are, I guess, more vulnerable, mm -hmm. right? So like the more you know about someone, usually the more you can feel connected to them or affected by them. But I think with a lot of these platforms, I mean, if you want to come up with a tactic, you could use a lot of the live technology. I mean, Instagram and Facebook, you can stream live for free. Uh, and that's one way to generate connection. But I think in general, um, I think it's part of what makes people feel connected to you is just the regularity. You know, like if every week you're in their inbox, it's a lot like watching a TV show or something. Mm. You know, you have your favorite actors when you're a kid. It's every Thursday at 7 p.m. Scrubs comes on. And then after like two months, you're like, oh, like, ah, uh, you know, I want a friendship like Turk and JD. Like <laughs> I, wish my, I wish my best friends and I were like that, you know? So there's some aspect of connection that comes just from regularity and consistency. Mm. I think that's a big issue, right? With people that are trying to start businesses or trying to build a brand on social media, the issue is consistency. Um, so what are some things you think are very helpful for people to understand when it comes to consistency, like tips to uh, develop consistent habits, uh, ways to avoid the pitfalls of, you know, like maybe you post on social media, but then you get stuck in scrolling for two hours after you post like these kind of common pitfalls that happen uh, to people that keep them from being consistent where, you know, they'll release a YouTube episode every couple of months mm -hmm. or they'll only post every couple of days because they don't kind of plan it into their schedule. What do you have to say to that? I mean, I think the big thing is people, it's just like going to the gym. People get caught up in what, you know, the advice is the general advice of the times mm. and they kind of lose that connection from what they are usually most intrinsically energized doing. So like, for example, you've probably like every rookie business owner hears the same tired advice. Like you need to be on social media. You need to be on these platforms. 99% of those people that have told me to be on social media do not have a successful business. Number one, and two, they don't make any any money or generate any patience from their social media. So it's like, it's, it's the, it's follow the follower where it's like the broke person who's convincing you that you need to do these things because it's what they were taught. And yet they don't, you know, it's like a crazy roundabout. I think the big thing is in terms of this era, in terms of consistency that you have the inner aspect, which is 
to do more things you like, it's usually easier to be consistent. So I would have people choose like one content platform, regardless of social media, pick a content platform that's either audio, visual, visual or written, and then make that be your one thing. And that's the one thing you're going to focus on and go really deep into. Because especially if you're a doctor or you're whatever practitioner of any of whatever, and you're trying to build a, a private practice, you know, like we, especially in the alternative medicine field, mm -hmm. we jump into a system not at all rigged in our favor. You know, we jump into a system where we, we're paying effectively the same, we're going into debt the same level of, as a physician, but I specialize in internal medicine and a physician who specializes in internal medicine starts off at a quarter million dollar salary after a, I think a three year residency. So I started zero because I'm going into private practice and the stats for people going into business is like 90% of businesses fail. The attrition rate, the people who just, uh, who leave the profession, including chiropractors and all these people, it's astronomically high. It's like 30 to 50% after five years are not even in practice. Why do you think they fail? Because when I hear, uh, you know, 90% of businesses fail, sometimes I think of that they gave up, like that they were doing bad and they kind of, they fell off. Is there any way to really ultimately fail if you just don't give up and you keep trying or maybe pivoting, trying new things? Maybe if you failed because you ran out of money, maybe find a strategy that doesn't involve spending so much money. Is there really any way to fail if you just don't give up? That's my question. Yeah, well, I think why most people fail is that there's number one, the opportunity cost if things are not working out and it's been a couple years. Mm. So like, put it like this, you just graduated, you have, let's just say you have a doctorate, um, you're in private practice and the whole first year, you only have like, your patient load is spotty, like 10, 15 patients a week at best. And it took you a whole year to get there, for example, let's say that. Or let's say I've heard an often um, reported statistic that it takes five years to get fully booked in a private practice, which is absurdly long. You know, let's say a year in, you're only making effectively a $40,000 salary or less, $30,000. You have $280,000 in debt. And now you have a kid and you're married and your significant other is like, well, what are we, what are we doing? Like, when are we going to take a vacation? When, and you're like, vacation. Like, I don't know how long it's going to take me to make a real income, let alone my debt, let alone how exhausted I already am. So, I mean, can you, I think for a lot of people, yeah, the, what happens is the runway, they run out of runway and they're like, well, either I really cannot make this work, meaning they're really not getting enough patients to even stay open. They're in private practice. They're paying whatever thousand mm. dollars a month, 1500 a month. And they're either just breaking even or they're making, let's say, $3,000 a month and they can't really afford to live. Mm -hmm. That's common. And I think the other one is just, it goes on for a long enough time where they're like, why? I like I can't live like this. This is like hard work. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. I studied medicine because it's what I like. Now all day I'm studying business. It takes just as many hours studying business as it does medicine. I didn't sign up for that. Sign up for that. So I think that's also really common. Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder sometimes too if it's, you know, people, their heart not really being in it in the first place. Yeah. Like maybe they thought that this would be a cool business idea or they know somebody on Instagram that did it or they try to model themselves after it. 
And then, you know, when the rubber meets the road and things get hard, uh, there's a tendency to just want to quit. It doesn't seem worth it, especially if you're not enjoying what you do. Like, let's say you're an entrepreneur doing something that isn't providing fruits for you and you don't really like it. So that seems like that's a big reason for quitting. Whereas if you're, if you went into it just because you love it, like medicine or something like that, you're much less likely to quit, even if you're not uh, like immediately successful and stick through. Um, and also there's, there's the point that um, you can always like pivot, right? Like uh, even if something's not exactly working the way you're doing it, there's always things you can, you can change to uh, make it work, right? Or something that you've been telling me a lot, which I think is really good advice, is thinking of, you know, what the customer or patient or client wants rather than like what you like or what you want. And you were telling me that that was a kind of big like hurdle that you had to overcome, uh, like a big revolution in the way you, you think about business and entrepreneurship. Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, if you want to have the best, you know, of all the criteria involved in having a really successful private practice, the number one thing, and there's even research on it, is your personality. Mm. That's it. The number one factor of predicting your private practice success is whether or not people like coming to see you. You know, and I have a great story of that. My sister was talking about she was going to switch gynecologists, right? And this was a very, like, very personal for her and uncomfortable. And so she said that somebody had this referral for this, this doctor, this physician, uh, but her wait list was six months long. That's how long it took in to get to see her. And she's like, there were other people I could see in like a month or three weeks, but I decided to wait. And she came back and she's like, I get why there's a half a year wait list for this woman. She was super uh, personable, super fun, very relaxed. It wasn't awkward at all. Um, and it just reiterated that the main reason people are going to come to see you at the beginning anyway, and maybe ultimately, is that they feel better just interacting with you. So that's something that can, that can go a long way for people because at the beginning, you know, technically, logically, we're the worst we'll ever be, right? And we're here trying to solve really often serious health problems because patients that come to us, you know, we're often the last call, the last stop before a patient does something dramatic or before they quit altogether. Mm -hmm. And it's the paradox of, well, you know, if they came three years ago, maybe there'd be like a real, a real obvious resolution. Now, maybe it's just palliation. But the first thing for a lot of people is just, if you're enjoyable to be around and you're, you have positive interactions with your patients, that's going to be enough for them to come back. But that comes back to thinking about more so what they want. Like if you want to, if your goal is to have a successful private practice, stop thinking about being able to pay your rent, start thinking about what is like a really sick, confused, jaded patient that's gone through the medical system, what would they love to have? And then list out 10 of those things and start doing them all for your patients. Mm. That makes me think of this, uh, this point of people being caught on this one track and thinking of things in a very uh, black and white way. Like, let's say they want to make a business work. They just put all their time into it. They quit their job. They say, I won't do any work other than this. And then that business fails. And of course, they're left with nothing. Meanwhile, there's tons of options where you can make it work, where kind of like what you did when you were uh, starting up your company, 
over the course of, you know, a couple of years, you, you would go to traditional work, you would go to a nine to five, you would get pay, you would support yourself. And then when you got home, you would do a couple hours of work and so on and so forth until eventually it was successful enough that you could quit your job. And I think people jump into it in this all or nothing attitude and don't think about uh, the kind of options that they have. Like maybe you shouldn't quit your nine to five. Maybe you should make plans to quit it, but that puts less pressure on that business, right? Because let's say you're doing a passion project and you want to turn it into a business. Sometimes if you try to force it to work, it's like it takes a certain amount of time. There's only so much you can do. You're going to stress yourself out and you're probably more likely to fail if that's your only option, right? Because let's say that is your only source of income and it's not working, then you just have to do like a sharp pivot and maybe you just have to get a job and drop it all together rather than building it up slowly over time while you work. Uh, And there's, I mean, that's open to everybody. And especially if you're passionate about what you do, that you would like to do that when you got home from work, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tricky because it's that dance with the devil where it's the the process versus that event kind of mindset right like there the everything in life is is some negotiation between you know gratification instant gratification mm-hmm. or delayed gratification it's just i think the ratio of your time you spend in that zone so it's like maybe starting my private practice is 50% of the time at the beginning, I don't like it because I'm doing like social media stuff and business and marketing. But the other 50% is I have a few initial patients and I love going home to study their cases and, and I love talking with them, etc. But it's just how much of your life is spent in that kind of negotiation with yourself. Like how much do you promise yourself to put off the gratification? Because it's a risk, right? Like it's always a risk maybe it won't work out. And how much of my day am I willing to risk hating, you know, for potentially having the return I want. So that ratio is the is the tricky thing. Um, And I think it's that's each person has to figure out what it is for them. Right. And some people put off their whole lives and then die. And then that's it. Yeah. I think they say like, eventually I'll do what I love. Eventually I'll, you know, I'll start that business. Eventually, you know, for now I have to work this crappy job that I, that makes me hate my life, but eventually work out and then they just die and nothing ever happens. Right. So there, I think there's almost like a negative aspect to putting off uh, things as well. I think the majority of humans probably live on delayed gratification, the delayed life plan actually, because it's like, you look at the whole retirement philosophy. That's, that's exhibit A right? I'm going to work hard for 40 years, the same company, get my pension. And if I don't have a heart attack, and if I'm still physically <laughs> able to have an erection, then maybe- Which I'll is be very able- unlikely in the United States, by the way. Right. By the time you're 65, <laughs> you're definitely not going to be able to have an erection. You're probably going to have had one heart attack, be hypertensive. And then you're going to like be like, well, I'm now with my wife in Machu Picchu and all these fun fantasies I had planned and all these fun adventures I had planned- I'm not going to go for a three-day hike at elevation with my current, you know, it's it's a bit hyperbolic, but I think, you know, American culture, and I think certainly American culture for sure, the defi- uh, deferred life plan is very, very common. Is we just bet that 40 years of hard work where we don't do anything we really want in between will hopefully um, ultimately come together and allow us to live the way we want when we're 60 or whenever. But that's clearly a, what is it? Mm. Faustian bargain? Is that the term? You know, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a, mm-hmm. sell your soul to the devil kind of thing. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a high, high, high risk. And, and besides it being 
it's kind of illogical anyway. It doesn't make that much sense. There's this poem by Walt Whitman that I think about a lot when this kind of conversation comes up. Um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically, the poem is about how he took the path, path less traveled. Mm. And, you know, at first he found all sorts of thorns and bushes and stuff, but then he eventually, when he looked back on his life, he felt like that was the best thing that could have happened to him. That even though he had to kind of make his uh, own way, it was still more worthwhile than taking, you know, the so-called well-paved road, which is this kind of idea of, you know, nine, uh, nine to five, eventually you'll retire and then you'll have fun, then you'll be happy. But it's like right. work reaches a habit, right? So if you spend like 30 years doing something you hate, like who, how do you know that when you get out of work that you're like going to even know what you like to do because you've been suppressing it for 30 years, right? Or you've been too tired. Too tired is probably a big part too of it. Too tired so. is probably the most realistic. You know, too tired. And yeah, also, like you said, you lose that connection to yourself over a period of time. Like if you've ever gone through prolonged stress where um, <clears throat> you you can't deal with an emotion, like let's say the emotion is just frustration and you feel frustrated every day you're in this job and you, just, you have to pay your rent, right? Mm -hmm. There's a certain thing that happens to people where... <clears throat> When that goes on long enough, after you come out the other side, kind of shell-shocked, if you get out, you kind of, you, you're, it's almost like you don't know what you want anymore. You don't know what appeals to you. You don't know what you like. You don't even know how you feel. And that's, I think, the primary reason you've lost the fundamental disconnection. You have, you've created the fundamental, most primal disconnection, which is from yourself. So now, like you said, now you're maybe 60 and you're like, well, what do I want? And it's like that aimless puppy effect. Right. And it's like, because you don't ask the question regularly, it's like, there's this saying by uh, Carl Jung later in his life, he has this kind of poem in the Red Book, which is kind of his uh, book of his revelations and visions that he had while using this technique called active imagination, which is kind of this visualization technique. But he says, he actually starts the book like, oh, my soul, I've been quiet and haven't spoken to you for so long. Like, what do you have to say? And that's like even somebody who's really successful and was searching for meaning in his life still feels like when he got into middle age that he had not actually listened to a lot of what his soul had been saying to him. And he almost was like a stranger from his own soul where he had to ask questions to coax it out. Like, what do you like? What do you really want to do? What if there was no limitations or paths to follow? What would I do with my uh, time? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I think it's a common phenomenon. I mean, we have a whole cultural term, midlife crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what that really is, you know, it's it's typically we, we joke about it being like the guy who gets like the BMW convertible and the trophy wife or the 20, 28 year old girl and he's 58. But I yeah, mean, if he, really if he can, it. if he can, if he can, right. <laughs> so if he, if he didn't let himself go enough holistically that that's possible. But I think the big thing is that's, you know, why, why those two things, right? Like why it's like such a craving for a, a hit of dopamine, right? But I think what it is, is a feeling of, I haven't been, I haven't felt alive in a long time. Like, I think a lot of people that drift that happens in life is so common. And then people wake up again, once the dust is settled and they're like, I didn't, I didn't want any of this. Like none of this was what I planned. I don't, I had all these dreams when I was young and I was in my twenties and I was in my thirties and I, 
what like what happened? I didn't think when I was 50, I was going to be here. I thought I would have like these adventures and these stories and I'd be successful at something I cared about and I'd be traveling. And I think that that, that feeling is so supremely common in people where we've let too much drift enter our lives and there hasn't been enough conscious reflection on the direction things are going mm-hmm. in. We let the current take us for a couple decades and we wake up and we're like, like in a foreign land that we didn't plan on being in or really want to be in. Mm. That's an issue too with the culture. You know, we're brought up through schools. Almost main purpose in a way is to make you into something. Right. Based on, you know, what people believe is good. Uh, And a lot of, you know, early school, like K through 12, is just focused around beating out your passions out of you. Because like, that's not useful. That's not productive. Blah, blah, blah. This is what's important. This math, this science, even if you're not interested, is what you need to learn. And we go through our most formative years in a system that fundamentally tries to make us into something that we might not be. And then by the time we get out, it's like college and then maybe you're right into work. And then you wake up when you're middle-aged and you don't even remember how you got there because you never really got an option, it seems, to to do your own thing. So for people who are listening who feel kind of trapped in their lives – Maybe they're in a job they don't like. Maybe they're in a relationship they don't like. Maybe they want to start a business or something, but they don't know how. What advice do you have for them that you think would be helpful? I think primarily the number one thing is to sit down and think. You know, it's, I think it's just highly underrated because when you look at the average person, when do people think about the trajectory of their life? It's one day a Not year at New Year's. What's that? When it's completely gone to shit, that's when they Yeah, think. exactly. When it's, you know, when we're smoking crack under the bridge. <laughs> and they were like, Classic. wow, wow. That's when you know you're just like, <laughs> yeah. where, how did I get here smoking crack under this bridge? It started with that delicious mochi in Trader Joe's and 800 mochi later, I'm a crack. avocado toast and just completely downhill from there. Avocado toast, man. I think the big thing, though, honestly, <laughs> is, is really reflection. Um. Because one thing I've seen, and I coached a lot of people in my 20s, and I coached primarily 20-somethings whose main question was, what do I do with my life? Mm. And I think the big thing is to actually take time to sit down and think. And I I would say think about there's logistical stuff, like what do I want to do for work every day? Like if I have to work nine to five, if I have to, what things are at least moderately interesting, exciting topics I could learn about forever and above? But also I would say, you know, uh, from the internal perspective is really just thinking about how you want to feel daily. Mm. And I think a lot of the time we get caught chasing the external, just like in dating, we get caught with like the checklist analogy. But really what most people I think are looking for is a feeling. And I think for most people, again, the feeling in both dating, work, everything is a feeling of connection, excitement, uh, feeling drawn towards something feeling magnetically attracted. It's like the feeling where you have a, there's a topic you just learned about that you just want to consume all day. That feeling of you go on an amazing date and you, you're you up till 5 a.m. on the phone or walking around drinking wine or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that, I think those are such archetypally important experiences because they're so uncommon. And I think mm. we get caught up in the logistics and the external criteria of the job. Like, you ask people how their job is, 
has anyone ever said to you, oh, I'm, I'm helping a lot of people. Like, have you ever heard that ever once in your life? I never have ever heard someone say that. Like, I've never heard someone say like, oh yeah, it's like, it's so much fun. Um, I feel so like it's purposeful, it's meaningful and it's helping people. I don't think I've ever heard a human being say that as one of the first three things. Mm. It's like stability pays me well, it's a good job. Um, you know, it's related to my major. So I think looking at them logistically externally, as well as what's the feeling you want. Maybe the feeling is, uh, it's meaningful and I feel excited about the day ahead. And for a lot of people looking for the meaning and the feeling, and then trying to figure out what, mm-hmm. what elicits that I think is going to be more useful and more valuable as you're trying to track that path versus the external logistics. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, luckily in my life, I've always kind of been kind of rebellious against the conventional ways of life. So it gave me a little bit of an advantage, so to speak, because I would look down these kind of alternative paths, like going into naturopathic medicine as just a part of my uh, uh, personality and doing like philosophy and thinking about these things. For people who, you know, don't have much experience in like thinking about these kind of things, what does thinking look like for you? Is that, you know, you writing down things on a list? Is that, you know, talking out loud? Is that visualizing? What kind of things does this kind of contemplation actually look like? Because people have definitely had the experience where they sit and they try to think about something, but then, you know, the monkey mind goes in a million directions and they, they end up thinking about, you know, avocado toast, even though they were trying to think about their life goal and thing. Right. It's, it, it's the nature of the mind to do that. So do you mean for someone who's trying to find like their life path? Yes. Yeah, so somebody who's trying to contemplate their life path, what they should do, how do they actually sit and think? Like, what are the strategies? So I'll, I'll give two big buckets. The first one is the general uh, philosophy of kind of tracking your life path. And in that bucket, I'm going to be channeling uh, Martha Beck, who wrote this amazing book, Finding Your Own North Star. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, uh, there's a concrete strategy I can give that I've worked with a lot of people on. But the the big fundamental thing is in order to end up finding, if you want to call it your your life purpose, I think it's a little bit cliche and it's a little bit, it's a lot of pressure to use that term. Like, yes, yeah, so I found my life purpose. Anything less than that is not my life purpose. Mm-hmm. But I think the big thing is <clears throat> if you don't know how you feel in your body, you can't recognize that. So if you don't know... For example, when you're talking to someone, besides what they say, what you hear, if you don't know how you feel when you're interacting with that person, that's like that intuitive gut faculty that recognizes emotion. That's very difficult to ultimately know how you're going to feel regarding attraction or repulsion from a topic. So one of these exercises that Martha Beck talks about that I thought was genius is in order to help people feel again, she has people go through these prompts. And one of them is like, um, write down one time where you were so, so embarrassed, right? Think about it in your head. Okay, I was in high school gym class. I got pantsed by my friend Johnny. And uh, and uh, my I was wearing a Superman underwear, right? And so like, she has, you close your eyes, you go through that exercise, and then you do a body scan and you're thinking you're feeling you're not, it's not a cerebral exercise at all. And the long, the long to it is 
I would not advise this to be a cerebral intellectual exercise. So I got pants by Johnny and Jim class. I had weird Superman underwear. The kids laughed at me. Where do I feel it in my body? Where do I feel uncomfortable? And for me, it's in my stomach a little bit. My palms are a little sweaty, et cetera. And then she has you close your eyes and think about, you know, the, the most just ugly soul list person you know and think about interacting with them it could be your mother-in-law could be your ex-girlfriend could be the president could be whoever right someone that just really makes you sick and then same thing think about them and where do you feel it in your body is it your chest do you feel stuffy chest do you feel knots in your stomach do you feel it your your brow furrow where do you feel it so this exercise you begin to train your gut to recognize how you actually feel again because you going back to the school thing, we're literally indoctrinated from the time we're four years old, five years old, just to develop the intellect, right? Like schools are even getting rid of, of uh, recess now, which is crazy. So the, if you imagine school is just developing the intellectual faculties, you're not trained to recognize how you feel. You're not trained to recognize your gut. You're not trained to recognize, you know, to, that ability to track that. And so beginning with these exercises, you're retraining how you actually feel internally, like the things that actually make your physiology, your actual body light up. So it's almost like a trauma or somatic approach to tracking your kind of life path. And then from there, it's when you interact with certain topics, when you interact with certain professionals in that field, when you think about that topic, do you feel the interacting with my mother-in-law feeling? Or do you feel the just went on a date and we talked until 6am feeling. And then you, then you recognize like, Oh, like this is a, not a, this is a negative feeling. That's, you know, that's pathological. And this is, uh, it's a positive inspired feeling. And then you can learn to recognize that inner barometer. Mm -hmm. So I think that's like the, the overall religion, the overall philosophy, because again, for a lot of people, I find that, um, especially 20 somethings are very afraid of, they're very perfectionistic. So they're very afraid of making the wrong decision. But usually what that results in is them making no decision because they're too paralyzed of the wrong one. And I would say also a lot of people do get caught up in the cerebral aspects, like you mentioned, trying to like think through your life purpose. Mm. And I find that it's usually not like that. It's usually more like you have five topics you're interested in. So you reach out to five local professionals, uh, an herbalist, a Kung Fu teacher, uh, a therapist, et cetera. And you take them out to coffee and you ask them about their profession. And then you do that body scan while you're talking again. Do I feel excitement? Do I feel kind of lukewarm? And that's usually a more accurate uh, way of finding your path I've seen. That's a really good point that you have to almost be trained to recognize your own feeling. Uh, and maybe in other cultures and times, this wasn't an issue, but obviously the way we're brought up to think through things, like I know of so many people who want to start something, but they get caught up in the details, mm -hmm. like they want to start a business or something, but just the thought of all the things that go into it, because they've seen like what it is, they get so caught up in the details that they're just afraid to act in any way rather than them having started out with like, what do I want to do and how can I make it work? Like, what do I feel I would love doing? What would make it work? They start with, you know, how do I make X amount of money? And then they like, they like go through the cerebral exercise 
and then they end up doing something um, they don't necessarily uh, feel passionate about. I think that's a that's a big issue, especially in these times where we're kind of left to our own devices, so to speak. We don't really have the kind of uh, rituals or ceremonies of initiation that older cultures had, especially right. for young people. It's kind of like you get out of school and you're just plopped out. Like maybe you get into college, but nonetheless, you're still plopped out. And there's not really a direct sense of uh, direction that many people are given. And it's not commonly talked about, you know, sit down and see what you want. I mean, it's always said as a cliche, like follow your heart. It's become such a like cliche that people just laugh at it now, even though it's so true in like a deep, realistic sense. People think of it as like an airy fairy, like, oh, some people follow their heart and then there's the realistic people and I'm just realistic. Yeah. And I think also people don't even know what their heart feels like to go there. Right. Cause it's like, look at all the people with intense uh, childhood trauma. Mm. They, they would swear that the men they've dated or the women they've dated, they feel intense connections to. Right. But realistically that, that connection is most likely replicating the mm. relationship or the absence of the relationship with the father or with the mother. So they would swear to God, they're following their heart. Like, I just feel this connection with him. I feel this connection with her. I don't know what it is. I can't stop thinking about it. But that's like the trauma bonding connection. So it's tricky because trauma, it just short circuits everything, the ability to recognize how a person really does feel. And then also, if you're not using that faculty, you know, I I was out in New York City, maybe three, four months ago. And I was talking with a friend and she was saying the criteria she's looking for in a man. And I said, so what are you looking for? What's like a really imp- impressive guy to you? And the first thing she said was, um, he probably makes like two, 300 K and his apartment is probably about seven, $8,000 a month in rent. Uh, ideally like a upper level in a high rise, maybe penthouse. That'd be cool. Um, monogamous, hardworking, wants kids, doesn't have to be that much love, but as long as it's serious and committed, like like such a disconnected, intellectual, cold, distant, like a robot writing down their list of criteria. Like that to me is like, you know, the, the shows how much disconnection there is. And I'm just, it's a friend, so I'm just picking on her. But a lot of people <laughs> I've heard that from, like variations of that. That's an extreme, like a very New York City example. But mm-hmm. people say the same things. Like they've got this spreadsheet of the six foot dudes, six figures, nice car, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera. But I would argue that that is just society talking through them. That if mm-hmm. you really ask them, like, like if you really go down the Socratic reasoning, you'll find that they don't actually necessarily believe what they say. Yeah. But a lot of times people, when you ask them questions like that, they'll just say kind of things that they're expected to say or things that they think should be the right thing to say or might be funny or might be like, because, um, you know, if you ask like a, like a guy like us, like, what are we looking for a woman? We might say like a certain joke or something like that. Like, oh, she has to be hot or attractive. Even though like if you were like bogged in, like, really, what do you want in a woman? Then I would get like serious and like, you know, like answer from the heart, so to speak. Right, right. Um, so I think a lot of times people, they answer on a very surface level. And even in their own minds, they answer on a surface level. So when they think about yeah. it, that's what comes up. They don't ask themselves the deeper question like, 
well, why do I want somebody that makes that much money? Or like, why do I even care about something like that? And once yeah. they ask that question, they'll they'll get closer to what they really want and what's much more likely to make them happy, right? Because what else right. is the point of life other than uh, some sense of fulfillment? Not necessarily like happiness in terms of emotion, but some feeling like life is good. I'm excited about life. I'm looking forward to the future. I think the present is pretty nice too. That's like a place everybody wants to be in. Uh, but we, I think we follow a lot of these kind of templates to how to do that because we see like society and culture tells us that, you know, to be successful, you have to do this, that, and this, and that kind of the checklist. Yeah. And people actually fall for it. They think, you know, well, I'm not happy now, but if I work for long enough, I'll have that house, I'll have that wife, I'll have that car, and eventually then I'll be happy, right? Even though those things in and of themselves don't necessarily make you happy and there's alternative uh, ways of life that aren't really discussed as options because some people, their hard desire is to get a house and to have a wife and a family um, or a husband and a family. And some people, that's not really in their heart. And maybe they just think that that's what they want, but they don't really know because they never um, challenged it or maybe even tested it, really. I think it's like that thing you were saying with the feelings. You have to kind of try these new things and see how it makes you feel, right? And then you'll know for sure. And um, that's kind of how I found my way into like the things that I'm doing now is I just purely went based on what is like exciting? What do I like doing? And I would always ask myself the question, well, what would I do for free? Like, would I do this for free? If I don't want to do it for free, then why am I doing it for money? I mean, like, especially from the entrepreneur standpoint, it's um, like money is obviously just a symbol and it's not going to bring you happiness. So if you're constantly doing things for something else, other than just for the thing itself, you're going to end up uh, having a life where maybe you make a lot of money, but you don't enjoy anything you do. So what's the point of it? Isn't it better to have like a $500 a month apartment and wake up every day passionate about some art project you're working on than make $10,000 a month and like dread going to work and dread waking up in the morning with a buzzer? Like, Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I had this primal example actually this morning. So I get an email from my student loan company saying mm -hmm. that we're transferring your loans to another company. And I have the Mint app on my phone. It shows all my personal accounts, my savings, business bank accounts, and all my student loans. So because the student loan company was transferring to another company, my Mint app just saw all my loans disappear. And it said, congratulations, you've paid off all your loans and you're debt free. And the most surreal experience happened because I was like, in reality, day to day, I'm starting to hustle again a little bit to get my practice going because it's what I love to do, see patients and study medicine, but also is to get these loans paid off, you know? But I had this visceral experience of they were paid off in cyberspace. But five minutes later, I was like, well, I, I don't feel any different. <laughs> like, I, like, was today I was going to look forward to? Is today going to be a fun day? Am I going to like what I'm doing or is it not? And that was like a very visceral reminder that the only thing that affects your life is really if you're, if you're liking the day, right? Like the day is like an archetypal present moment, ideally. And it just taught me like for jobs, especially 
people chase all these things. And it's like that, that quote that there's two great tragedies in life. One is not getting what you want. And one is getting what you want. Because like a lot of really successful people share in interviews, if, if you were a misguided, highly ambitious person, and I think there's a lot who have, uh, who are internally guided, you just don't hear about them because they're doing well in life holistically. But the ones who derail, they often speak of the tragedy of what happens when you think that, let's just go with money and fame, that no money and notoriety are going to fill the hole you have or whatever you perceive the void to be. And then you get them, especially at a young age. Like let's say you're a celebrity musician, artist, actor, and then you're 29 and you make more money than you know what to do with and more recognition. You have more girls, more guys around you that are attractive. And then you realize it didn't fix that feeling. That's a scary thing because at least if you were broke, you could justify it by being like, well, you know, once I get 100K or a million dollars, then I can just like sit back for a mm-hmm. sec. But the problem is most of humanity will always be in the rat race. So they never learn firsthand because they never get what they want. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that's the catch. All of us are really just craving a certain feeling every day. And you could have that with all the money and success, or you could not have that with all the money and the success. It makes no difference either way. But the tragedy is that unless you reach the ultimate level of what you think is successful, you never will learn internally that it was fairly unrelated mm. to how you feel daily. And people are mostly craving a feeling. And there's that point too, that even if you're just chasing to distract yourself or fill the void, that in and of itself is a problematic approach, right? Cause even if you're looking for something to do to make yourself not feel the void, I think you're completely missing out. Uh, I think in that case, feel the void, meditate on it, see what it has to tell you, right? See, maybe you're not living up to your own expectations. I think sitting with the feeling, it gives you the answers you're looking for where in the places where you don't want to look. So yeah. instead of trying to cover it up with like fame or money, some just see like, well, why do I feel like that? And then that will give you the answers of how to fix it rather than, you know, just patch it up and distract yourself from it, which is the usual approach. Yeah. And going off what you said, there may be a faster way. Like maybe with the, maybe the void, which I think is true for the majority of humans is you just don't feel, you feel disconnected. Like you don't feel like you have a lot of connection and love in your life. And maybe it's completely unrelated to work. Maybe your goal to make a million dollars this year, if instead you built an orphanage in Africa and you dedicated your weekends to building friendships, volunteering, helping people, working at an animal shelter, getting a dog, like maybe that feeling of connection was the thing you've been actually looking for. And you're mistaking success with connection because it feels like love when people value you for being successful or beautiful or whatever. So I think, yeah, figuring out what what the void even is is really important. I mean, because there's a lot of people who have their basic needs met. They have all this, you know, enough money, 50, 60, 70K, 80K, but they don't feel like there's any meaning or any challenge or any growth in their life. And these are often highly educated professionals, engineers, doctors, lawyers. They're just in the rat race. Like there's no, there's no reason to keep doing it. They have their financial needs met, but kind of the needs of the spirit, uh, there's just no excitement for life, you know, that joie de vivre is just not there. Mm. And so again, for them, maybe 
maybe everything's fine. They just need an exciting project on the weekend. You know, maybe it doesn't need to be a catastrophic rebuilding your life thing. It's just, you need to do something meaningful on the weekend or, or something that contributes. So yeah, I definitely be something agree. really uh, simple too. It could yeah. maybe not even be or, uh, opening the orphanage. It could be like, for me, it's uh, going out in nature, maybe like just breathing under a tree and just like looking around like that in itself has sometimes been more fulfilling than anything I've ever done in the truest sense of fulfillment where it's not like you're filled because you got something or you got somewhere, but you're just fulfilled in and of itself. Like you just think if I always had this feeling, my life would be great. Like, but there's a lot of small things throughout the day. Like some people get it through a cup of coffee in the morning. Some people get it through a loved one, through a dog, through walking in nature. I think filling your life with those kind of things is, um, kind of a counterintuitively the way that you can be successful because then you're in tune with what makes you happy. So you're more likely to pursue a kind of uh, business life that's related to that. And of course, everyone knows uh, the most successful business people are usually people who are really inspired about what they do because it's very infectious. If you're like really into medicine, you believe in human health and you think everybody could heal themselves, like, and you really believe that and you work on it, your patients will too. And that will actually be healing to them in and of itself, just your drive and personality uh, that it kind of aligns with you. It'll make sense. It won't be false. Right. Right. But that's, uh, that's the human struggle. Uh, From a philosophical point of view, do you think everybody can follow their dreams or are some people bound by the unfortunate reality of society to be, in the rat race? Like, is there some portion of people that will always be in the rat race and there's nothing that can be done about it? And we're kind of just, you know, people who are lucky enough to have been brought up in a certain way where we had that option. Cause I know some people will probably contest that. Like, well, I grew up like this and that, that was never an option. I had to, you know, work for my bread from the very beginning and never had time for these philosophical ideas of follow your heart, you know, yeah, I mean, I think if you live in an uncontacted tribe in the Amazon, <laughs> or, <laughs> they or probably, they're probably pretty fulfilled, I would guess, because they're not they're probably they're probably not searching by civilization. still uncontacted, you know. Um, I think, well, I mean, there's like a billion humans on Earth that don't even have enough food every day. I yeah. think for them, realizing their dream is probably very unlikely, because I think it does follow Maslow's hierarchy a mm-hmm. lot, which is why you. It's challenging because I feel like I feel like genius is pretty evenly distributed throughout the human species, but because opportunity isn't, you you see heavy bias in where it comes from. So I also think that like a lot of people, you know, like talking about people doing what they're passionate about, or people becoming like icons of history, like Da Vinci or Nikola Tesla or whoever. I think a lot of the reason why these old masters were so why we remember them is because there were so many, there were so fewer of them because for most people, how are you going to do that if you had no education, right? Like you have no education, you have no access to educated people. How, where would be the opportunities to be like a world-class painter, for example? So I think it's challenging. I mean, how am I going to say go after a dream to a mom who has uh, three kids? She's a single mom she sleeps four or five hours a night and she eats what she can afford to put in her mouth. Like that, you know, it's challenging because you can argue it any way you want, but 
for pretty much every objection, you can find someone who's done it. So I think it's really, really difficult. It's, it's, uh, I think a mindset thing for a lot of people barring the, you know, uncontacted, uh, tribe in the Amazon joke. There are a lot of people who are in such remote parts of the world with such little access to anything. I, do I think many of them will have the chance to pursue their dream? Probably not. They'd have to be a one in a million person who is that archetypal person with nothing going for them. And yet through just sheer force of will and collateral thinking and raw desire, they will find a way. There's always people in every generation from every part of earth that end up doing that. Um, so I think it's up to each person to figure out if they're willing to dedicate their life to finding a way, you know, as far as, it's not an excuse. as far as people who are watching this, like if you have an internet connection in this world, you can do anything really. I mean, yeah. if you have access to a computer an internet, a phone, you can kind of turn your passion into like a, a monetary thing. And, you know, maybe you can't leave your job for five or 10 years, but even that, that story of, you know, the mother of multiple children, who's just working to stay afloat. Like what if you just did something you really love for like five minutes a day and maybe in a couple of years, you could see a situation where maybe you can turn that into profit and you can leave that system. I think, Right. The important thing is there's always a way and a hope, but the thing that stops people from doing it is they just are hopeless. Like their spark is gone. They have no energy. Yeah. Um, how do you recover from that? Like, let's say you've been working at a soul crushing job for your whole life. And just this, like, just this mention of like this kind of thing. I don't know if like a lot of your uh, listeners or audience are these kind of people. They probably are more like entrepreneurial people who are kind of motivated but for people who really are uh, feel really trapped and soul crushed, how do they come back so that they can even feel okay about this thing? Obviously, this is like a psycho-spiritual health question. How can you pull yourself out of a deep depression to make yourself do hard work when your life is already kind of horrible, more or less? I think the big thing in that scenario is really your friend group. Because like this kind of, you know, soullessness there's a a great personal development author earl nightingale my favorite and he uses this term he's like you can see uh he's like this is the generation of uh barbiturates and uh whatever and he's like you know how you can see the soullessness in people you see it on their slack bovine like faces you know, the person, isn't that for great? anyone like, who doesn't know that means pig that's the pig family <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, terrible that's like anything to say we just talking about like <laughs> that face like you know like a droopy kind of face like welcome to fat burger king of the fat burger you know but you're gonna get canceled uh, dude. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm gonna cancel no matter what if it's i say it, whatever's real um, speak the truth yeah well i think for a lot of people is you have to dedicate time to number one being around inspired people. So like that usually means really shaking up your life because people, it's just a, it's like a state of consciousness, right? Like when you're in a really upbeat mood, think about someone who's like, you're in like a, uh, like a pretty neutral mood and you meet someone that's like, Hey, what's going on? Life is great, man. And you're like, dude, just stop. Like, just let me like shoot a potato in your face or something. Like, let me just like, 
like, stop, like, what are you doing? But it's weird because they're a happy person. They're like really, really in an upper state and you're just in the lower state and it's annoying, right? It's like an objectively better state for your health to be like, you're positive, you're upbeat. And, you know, you go to the barista at the counter and maybe they're the, the depressed one or maybe you're the depressed one and you're just coming in for your coffee at 8 a.m. on Monday and you're like, yeah, I'll take a, just a large Americano. And they're like, nice, dude, what are you doing today? Like, how's it? How's life? And you're just like, shut up, Sarah. I got to like, just give me my coffee. I like, what are, you, what are you talking about? But that's like, in reality, that's that people are mirroring emotions. And so it's very unlikely that if you are in a soul crushed state that you're around inspired people all day long. You know, it's very likely that you're actually yeah. with people in a fairly similar state. And it's like, there's that quote, what is it? Uh, where do all the people who hate their job go at 5 p.m.? The bar, mm. you know? It's like, that. It's like, what's a happy hour for? And so I think the big thing is you need to dramatically shake up your schedule to be around different people. Whether that means you're gonna go to a yoga class on Saturday morning now, so you don't go out drinking on Friday, whether that means finding one new friend, go to a Tony Robbins seminar, you're going to find a lot of inspired people there. You can stay in touch with them in person or virtually, whatever it is, I would change your friend group number one. The second thing is begin, you know, turn this into a fun challenge. Like me currently, one of my main goals for the year is to try to have the most fun year of my life. I'm treating it as a sabbatical. My three like words are, I'm reading it in the kitchen, sabbatical, fun, and connection. How, that that should that should excite me, right? Like I'm literally saying I'm on a vacation where I'm going to prioritize fun and feeling connected. So I think if people dedicate time to being like this year, my goal is to f- see how good I can feel. And then at the beginning, you're like, well, uh, I don't, I don't even know how I feel. But as you begin experimenting with things. One day you volunteer at the animal shelter. One day you go to a shooting range. One day you go zip lining. One day you plan a vacation. You start to like the sleepiness wakes up. You know, you're like dusting dust off the crystal ball. And it's like, you're just the snow globe or whatever. And you're just like, it's like you get sleepy. Or the, the spirit gets weary and you're just kind of like, you wake it up gradually. There's a thing uh, Tim Ferriss says, which I think goes along with this and is uh, very insightful, which is that, you know, we don't live up to ourselves because we don't ask the right questions, right? So something along the lines of what you were saying, so you ask yourself, you know, what can I do that's fun? What would be a fun uh, year for me? These are the kind of questions we need to ask to get those kind of results. Like if you ask the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong answers, right? If you ask, how can I make the most money this year? then maybe you'll get the most money, but that doesn't mean you're you're necessarily going to be happy with your life. But if you ask, how can I be the most fulfilled this year and meet my needs, then like it's much more likely that you can have both, so to speak, rather than, you know, just uh, tunnel visioning on one aspect. And to and add think- to the friend group, sorry, uh, for people that even if you can find a friend group, I mean, there's hundreds of podcasts out there where you can hear inspiring people talk uh, with people who are very successful that you can trust what they say when it comes to this kind of thing, because, you know, they made it and they have some advice of how to get there. Or you can read the classics of literature, like the great, you know, philosophers or great uh, literature, anyone who's very uh, great poets like Rumi or something like that. And you don't even need necessarily a friend group as long as 
you surround yourself with the kind of uh, material impressions and experiences of even people who might not be alive today can enrich your life. And in fact, that's the story of a lot of great people. They read all, you know, all the classics and they were inspired by them. Maybe everybody in their friend group was like a loser. So they just isolated themselves, but they read and they saw this is possible for a human. Uh, so there's so many ways to do it. It's not like Obviously, it's better for the person to be there and alive because they'll have more of an influence on you. But sometimes you can't find people like that. Like, right? You know, where, where are there? You know, Alan Watts and Carl Jung and stuff. Yeah, where They're are they? Just in the around? books. They're not yeah. like, you know, like we aim to be like them. They're beyond us, but we can learn a lot from them because they're just humans, right? They're just they're just like us in a lot of ways. Right, and I think coming back to the the beginning of that what's a lot more common for most people is not asking questions like, how can I make a lot of money? What's most common is people don't ask any questions. Mm. And I think that's the most insidious of it all because like in the same way that someone's asking me, why would I book a one-way ticket to China, which I did in my early twenties? My answer is always another question, which is why not? My question is, why are you in a nine to five job? some finance job that does nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm a combative, I'm a pretty combative person, but in the same exact way, (laughs) I could say, why the hell are you in a job working nine to five? That clearly doesn't make you feel that good. It doesn't contribute anything to you or humanity just to exist on a piece of land, paying your rent, which you then try to, you know, self-medicate by going to the bar six days a week. Like that to me is insanity, but I think, yeah, the most insidious is never asking any questions. And I think that's mo- for sure most of humanity. And that's what I think leads to that coasting effect. Do you think that there's something like inherent in our personalities that makes us think this way that maybe it wouldn't necessarily apply to everybody? Because obviously, you know, from within the Carl Jung and Myers-Briggs systems, we're both pretty uh, relatively introverted. We're both typically pretty intuitive, meaning we see patterns and things and we tend to be kind of based around our feelings and things like that. So, you know, uh, when I ask you what's important to you, it might be something like, well, what makes me feel good? Like, or same thing, I would say the same thing, what makes me feel excited or inspired. But that's... um, coming also from our unique personalities and we're alike in that way for somebody who's not like that. Do you think the same advice applies and can you even give advice to them? I guess. I mean, I don't know if it's possible. Wait, what was your initial question going back to it before the Myers-Briggs? So we're a certain type, right? We're intuitive feeling. That's how we base our life and meaning. Do these kind of advices apply to everybody or more for people who tend to be like us? And is there advice you give to people who are just they're just fundamentally different in a way. Well, I think it's, it's probably a complex of factors, you know, and I think, you know, but even for me, like we're, I'm an INFJ, but only recently did I really start using my gut again in life. I'd been, you know, indoctrinated out, indoctrinated out of it to be using my logic and my intellect. That's what all of school has been training me to do. That's what all of life's been training me to do, mm. put things on a you know pro con list and then analyze them. So I think you can easily get trained out of your instincts. But I think for a lot of people, that free thinking thing, that rebelliousness, that, uh, that quality, I think is a quality of leadership, right? Because you often see uh, rebels who are leaders, right? 
I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's a, a weird thing. What's that? It's a cliche in some sense. Yeah, it's a cliche. Um, but that's, it's like that charisma and that free spiritedness that allows people to question how everything's going. And it can go a lot of different ways. It can go Hitler and it can go to, you know, whoever else that did great things that were very unusual for the planet. Mm. Um, I think it's complex. I think it's a combination of culture and parenting. You look at people with ethnic parents that are strongly uh, guilt tripped into following a very traditional path. You know, you better be the doctor or the lawyer, or the whatever engineer. That's obviously a cultural stereotype, a cliche, but that's, that by itself is a, a mountain of expectations to crawl out of, you know, that obscures your Martha Beck calls it your essential self, which is basically your gut. And she calls that your social self, who you're programmed to be. That is another mountain of BS you've got mm -hmm. to crawl through to really uncover who you're feeling. That's a good point. We're influenced a lot by these people around us and sometimes in negative ways. There's a really epic line in the uh, kind of Gnostic Gospels of Christ, uh, like from the Gnostic Christian perspective. And Jesus says something along the lines of, you know, to follow me, you must cast away your mother and father and your brother and sister. And I think what it's what is meant like to follow the true path in whatever sense, you have to completely give up your care of other people's opinion of you or what you should do. Like you have to just put it all to the side, figure it out for yourself. And maybe it accords with it or maybe it doesn't, but that's not really, um, we're a lot of times we're pressured into doing things that we don't want to do because the people in our life and, you know, maybe it comes from a place of love. Uh, they want us to do a certain thing. Right. But I mean, how hard is it to even know what you want to do yourself? So to think that somebody else knows what's right for you is just impossible because to find out what's right for yourself is already almost an impossible task. Right. And that's the same reason why people get so hyper-logical about it is because it's already decided for you, right? Like we decided you're going to be a doctor, your personal, and it's, again, going back to the cultural thing, like in uh, a lot of the Asian cultures, it's about, you know, societal cohesion, family cohesion, your personal interests don't matter because it's not about you. So you're, you're not even trained to, to think about what you want because you're discouraged and it's selfish if you think and you choose your life based on what you want. Like we are notorious in America for being the cowboys and the, the teenagers of the world. And it's a very American trait to go find your dream, manifest destiny, go do what you want. That's very American, actually, in terms of, you know, cultural programming. So even that, we have a huge leg up and a huge advantage. Um and I think obviously it comes with disadvantages. I think that's why Americans are also some of the most depressed and most anxious is exactly because of that. We're not trained to value cohesion and uh, social connection like that. But I think, yeah, the culture is a, is a, it can be a huge advantage or a huge handicap. One final uh, question to end this off. So you've obviously had a pretty long journey through entrepreneurship. You started how long ago about like, I think exactly six years. Six years? I think so, yeah. Over the years, what are some like some big insights you've had uh, specifically around terms of when did you feel successful and how did you even, um, how did, 
how did the process look like from your point of view? Like, how did your daily life change when, you know, more people started following you? Did it come as a surprise? Was it like one day just a lot of people followed you and you were just like, oh, wow. Like, I, I didn't even notice. I was just busy grinding. I want to know a little bit more of the internal experience of this process of becoming yeah. successful. Well, I mean, I actually had a, a Nobel laureate in physics interview me recently, a professor at UCSD. And he asked me, how does it feel to have reached your goals at a young age? And I kind of felt weird because I didn't feel like I've reached any goal, actually. Uh, so that was kind of confusing and it prompted a lot of reflection. Um, it's weird because if you have, let's just say you have a long-term goal for a lot of people financially, it's like six figures. That's like, it seems like a lot of money, right? But often you're so entrenched in the day-to-day -day that you don't even realize, like you go back and you're like, oh, I made six figures that year. That was weird. You know, that was like every year for however many years. It's like, that's all I could think about. Like that, then I'll be financially secure. Then I can do anything that's fun in my business. I don't have to do, no one's going to force me to do anything. But it was underwhelming, you know? And in the same way, um, I'll give you a good, good one, audience growth. I'm someone who's never, ever tracked my audience size, ever. Not on YouTube. It was never a goal. Um, the way I started on YouTube was accidental, in a sense. I was starting to upload videos as a break from the things I disliked in my business. And I realized that shooting videos was a lot more fun. I got a lot more positive responses. People were more engaged. Mm -hmm. And it was easier. It took less time to shoot a video that helped people and was engaging than it did to write an article with citations. So I was like, let me just do it. And then by pure coincidence, I was, my girlfriend at the time, her cousin had a younger brother and he was like seven, eight years old. And he's like, oh dude, like, dude, what's your YouTube channel? And like, I, I pulled it up and he's like, whoa, you have 3000 subscribers, man. You're like famous. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't follow any people on the internet really. So I don't know like what's, what's a lot. And I was like, 2000 is a lot. Really? He's like, yeah, man, like 10,000. You're like a really famous person. <laughs> and it's just like this cute little kid. And so in like another few months, it was at like 10,000. And again, I was just uploading videos. Whenever I, th I thought of interesting topics, there was no, no planning, no strategy. Just, I want to create unique topics to help my clients lose weight and just like come up with creative strategies. Like do be a good job being a unique teacher. And then I realized I had like, uh, you know, 10,000 followers all of a sudden. And then I had the first, I think month of school that we started our, our doctoral program. I activated ads on YouTube because I was like, well, maybe there's some business potential here. I'm, I'm putting in all this extra time. And like two days later, a video went viral and like got almost like a million views, something crazy. And my channel like 5X in the in audience in like two weeks. And I guess for me, internally, that kind of stuff has always felt very, felt like virtual reality, right? Because like you see numbers go up, but especially with followers, your bank account doesn't change. You know, if anything, as an entrepreneur, like you really do want to see that you're helping people and that your, your bank account's changing, like, cause your followers don't pay your rent. They don't pay your employees rent. They don't help you put food on the table. And I think for me, a lot of it is just when you're in it day to day, 
you're just focusing on doing the best day to day. And then you don't even realize sometimes that, uh, you know, a goal has been reached or, um, you know, or you don't realize you think something is an end point and it's really a beginning point. If that mm-hmm. makes sense, mm-hmm. you think like 10,000 followers on my podcast and people are listening to me and it's cool. and I'm getting feedback. It's starting to feel real. I can see that I'm helping people. It's exciting. I feel the potential. And you're like, once I get to that, then I'll be like, mm-hmm. then I can relax. Like then a lot of these, I'll like, be happy with it. Yeah. Like whatever it is, whatever the story is, that revenue figure for me, a big one was, was really about uh, financial security. Cause that's what was stressing me out. So I was like, well, when I get to that revenue number, then I'll definitely feel safe. And then of course you can, I mean, I heard this, um, this executive coach talking about coaching a billionaire in a therapy session. Mm-hmm. And he said, this billionaire, one of our most recurring discussions was about he would get pissed about how much toilet paper his wife bought because of how much it was costing. Wow. He would buy the most extreme eight ply toilet paper and get like <laughs> hundreds of rolls, hundreds of rolls of it. That's and a little like, bit extravagant. Is she the one that caused the shortage? Yeah, it was her. It was all Nancy. <laughs> and uh, he was like, he was like, think about as a normal person, how absurd this sounds. A billionaire getting pissed off at his wife for buying toilet paper, right? So then he said, I had the billionaire calculate if his wife bought a million rolls of toilet paper a year, how much would his net worth decrease every year? And when the billionaire did the calculation and he realized that he would still be a billionaire, he was a little bit less stressed. What I'm saying is there's no amount of external security you can create that produces internal security. So you tell yourself, I make hundred K then I'll be safe. Well, guess what? Businesses go up and down. Economies go up and down. The yoga studio outside my apartment in LA, they made $65 million last year through all their locations. They just went bankrupt. They're out of business just because of coronavirus. So if you think making $65 million makes you safe, no such thing. There are billion dollar brands that have gone out of business, clothing brands. So the big thing is what it taught me was I tell myself there's some end point but every endpoint is just a beginning point. Mm. So you say 100,000 followers, I'll be like the king of the herbs on the internet. But then you realize, well, guess what? What's not going to stop? I'm not going to stop teaching. Once I have, you know, once I keep teaching and then there's a million people following me, maybe I can like build a retreat center with all the people that support me. And then you get to a million. You're like, this is like most human beings on earth. This would be the dream. And then you're like, a million. I'm not going to stop teaching now. Like in a few years, I could have 50 million. I could buy a friggin' Island. And then we could put together like a really, really cool live in retreat center on that Island. It's just like, you realize that just the human consciousness is always evolving with new desires and new evolutions. And then for me anyway, it's really taught me to train myself to only follow excitement. That's the number one barometer for me. Like I literally put together this Bible here. And here's one thing it says. 
don't know if you can read number three there. Can you see it at all? Actually, I should make sure there's nothing uh, sketchy on this. But, <laughs> <laughs> like in, retro, in retrospect, I don't think I put anything on there, but to be sure. There's but just I wrote like a down, big, like, big penis on, on that. Yeah, you know, I usually that does go on my goal. symbol. Usually, yeah, usually it's just like an archetypal Aries masculine energy symbol that I have generally on my wall above that scroll. But, you know, for the sake of the interview, I tried to keep it professional. Um, but the, the third thing here is just, it says Dharma and intuitive action only take action on things that inspire and excite you. Mm. Because that guarantees that you win no matter what, right? Like if you're always evolving to let excitement dictate what you do, and other people trained me to do this. I, I was taught this. I didn't mm-hmm. fully realize it myself. It was hiring coaches and trying to find another way. That's the thing that is the nuclear reactor of energy that will always help you reach wherever you want to go. And that's the that's often the feeling you're looking for anyway. I think that story gives all the answers that anyone could ever basically want because people think they're going to get some kind of ultimate fulfillment out of some number of viewers and that's why a lot of people even get into business or youtube they want to get you know 100k subscribers or something but knowing the experience from internally and you know i i just started my podcast like a year ago so i've had like little glimmers of what you're talking about where it's like i just woke up one day and i realized i had this many listeners and like i didn't feel any different but the good thing is and this is the the big blessing is I never did it for the subscribers or the listeners. I only did it because I just like doing the podcast. Like I just enjoyed doing it. I, I would have been just as happy with five as, you know, a thousand or a hundred thousand or whatever. Uh, right. So that doesn't mean, you know, don't go out and do the work because it's pointless. It just means make sure the work is meaningful because what you think is pointful, it's probably not that important. You know, it's not that important. Even like something that's so cut in, uh, set in stone, like security or money. It's like, even that isn't that important when it comes to fulfillment and happiness. So I think that's right. just, it's just amazing advice for anybody who's like worried about starting something new. It's, if you're passionate about it, you love it, just like do it, whatever. Maybe you'll get a couple subscribers, maybe you'll get a million, but does it really even matter anyway? As right. long as you're happy with what you're doing. I mean, right. everyone's going to die no matter how many subscribers they have on YouTube. So it doesn't really make any difference. Yeah. You're not going to get more years of your life or even yeah. happiness from it. Right. And it's like, you know, because everything in life is such a wild card, right? And that's the thing. Business is the the biggest wild card because you find people who do the same thing. They work just as hard and it doesn't pan out. You find every big company, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, there were dozens of startups doing the same thing just a few years earlier. The timing wasn't right in the marketplace for the internet speeds. Pure, you know, pure chance. So if you chase that feeling, the right feeling that's really exciting you and fulfilling you, it's like if I work hard, you know, these are like eight different things I could start or eight different life paths to go down. But some of them I hate, some of them I love. I don't know what which one's guaranteed and which one's not guaranteed. So if you really want to take the wise bet, the wise bet is whichever one's going to be the best damn journey, the most fun you know path. And then from there, you can figure out if you want to layer on doing something that is guaranteed, whatever, to get followers or to get income or to get patience. But the main thing, I think, is if people learn to chase the feeling they want first, they'll be surprised. They often do get what they want externally. 
And it it's pretty uneventful when you do because you're doing it for a, an intrinsically motivated reason. Do you think there's some kind of magical thing happening here with that kind of thing? Do you think that there is like some kind of force that uh, kind of like manifesting or something that gives people who follow that some kind of quote unquote edge in some I, sense? I definitely think so. I'm getting a sip, a superstitious sense about it. And it's funny because I'm kind of quoting Joseph Campbell here. I watched an interview with him and he said, the interviewer asked him that exact question. And he said, you know, I'm developing a kind of superstition that when you follow your bliss, that you put yourself on this track that the universe had there for you all along. And these doors open that would not have been opened. You know, his whole quote about doors will open where wherever there were just, what does he say, walls before? Or mm -hmm. Yeah, he says, uh, if you follow your bliss, doors will open where there was only uh, walls. Sometimes. Yeah, I find that these kind of tales of the Dharma, like when people are like, this is my purpose, there's often that feeling of, it looks like they're guided. I'll put it like that. It looks like they're unusually fortunate. And I think that's a combination of that emotional resonance, like excitement. Like think about how awesome a loving relationship is going to be if you're super excited about it. Like if you're having this brand new relationship with somebody and it's just, it's so awesome. It's so intoxicating. The chances of it working out, if it's mutual are, are much higher than if you're just lukewarm. Like a lot of humans know the feeling of dating someone that's lukewarm about them kind of sucks how they act, you know? And so I think it's the same in business, which is really hard. And I think uh, if you don't love it, then once things get difficult, you're going to view them in a superstitious light that I guess just wasn't destined to be. But if it's Dharma and it's your purpose and it's what excites you, the, the walls don't mean anything. Because in my head, I'm telling myself, no, 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 no. This is my destiny. That like it doesn't matter. There is no wall. There's no nothing. Like I create the laws of nature. It's going to bend around me. And that's like that mindset by itself. How are you going to compete with that? Like you can't compete with that. That's like, that's indestructible, you know, spirit quality behind it. So I that's think- That's a really is, good point. Yeah. You know, there, like- Even if there is like, I mean, we could debate endlessly whether there's some real spiritual force behind it. Mm -hmm. But what we can say for sure is that it seems to be. And maybe right. it's only psychologically because there's some advantage to doing it like that. I heard this uh, podcast, I forget who it, uh, what his name was, but it was on Joe Rogan. And he was saying like the wildest thing that I 100% agree with. And he said, no one can compete with me. I do what I love 12 hours a day. No exactly. one can compete with me. Who can, co because if you don't love it, you just can't do it. Like it's, there's no there's no loss there, you know, like there's no competition where somebody who does what they love and work hard at it, they have no competition because it's, it's uh, what we love is so unique and so particular. And as long as we're not trying to, you know, sell out to the crowd and we do what we love, you'll be probably one of the few people doing it. Like if it's something specific, like your channel with uh, Chinese medicine or my channel with like herbs and natural health, like, we're some of the few people doing it and we love doing it. So, you know, that like already makes us stand out so that we don't even have to think about being successful. We just keep doing what we love and eventually it'll work. Right. It's just yeah. inevitable, right? You keep putting time and effort and pushing, you know, pushing the pencil and pushing it and pushing it. And then eventually like what you said, 
when the opportunity comes, you have that chance to break through. So every ounce of work you put in, you have more of a probability that when that chance opens, you'll actually be able to go through it. And then once you do, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Then you can just keep doing what you love. Um, but it's, it's a weird process. Yeah. Takes a while to find it. I mean, even if you want to look at entrepreneurial success, there are so many stories about the greatest, most successful people who didn't, they've been trying for a long time to make it work in business. And it was like their third, fifth, 30th try, you know, I mean, Oprah's story is really interesting too, just in terms of Dharma. She talks about when she started following what she felt like was her purpose. That's when her brand exploded. Mm. You know, so there's, it's tricky, you know. There's a lot of counterintuitive stuff with it, right? Like the things we think would make us successful are not true. Like all those ideas of, you know, just do what you need to do and forget your heart and do what's successful. Like those ideas can be really detrimental and can make you not take the path of like, I always get mind blown. Have you ever heard uh, like Joe Rogan talk about how his podcast became successful? Mm-mm. I mean, he literally has like tens of millions, hundreds of millions of, of listeners on each episode, just on YouTube. Um, and what he said is like, and I, I take it so to heart. And I think about it whenever I'm like feeling like maybe I'm not as successful as I should be. He said, you know, I started it just doing it with friends just for fun. I didn't really care who watched it. And I just kept doing it and kept doing it, kept doing what I wanted to do, talked about what I wanted to talk about, didn't like follow any metric, didn't even have any strategy. And then one day I woke up and realized, wow, this is really successful. But then I just kept doing, you know, what I, uh, what I loved. And, you know, a lot of people told him early on in his career that, oh, you'll never make money podcasting. You'll never, you know, it'll never be anything significant. Uh, but he didn't stop doing it because he wasn't doing it for that reason. Maybe he even believed them. It was like, well, maybe it won't be successful, but I just like doing it. So I think that's the most powerful viewpoint. And I think genuinely that every person can find something like that for themselves where they can find something that really excites them that they like. And I mean, the basis of it is just express it to other people, right? Like whether that's through YouTube or social media or through a product, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's just do your passion and then find a way to connect with people. And then that's it, right? That's the whole formula and just keep doing that. Um, And if you really love it, then you won't give up or you'll find pivots that are related enough that it makes sense. So maybe you'll start out, you know, making this product and then eventually you'll just move to education, et cetera. Like, yeah. As long as you follow that internal compass though, and going along with this point of, you don't have to believe anything spiritual to think this is uh, the truth. Our like subconscious mind understands things that we never will consciously. So like your subconscious mind can give you like a suggestion, like, yo, just make that video. And you don't know, maybe your subconscious mind saw that, well, this is the perfect time and the market is perfect. And, and it knows all these things that you can't be conscious of, but you know, it's the right thing. So sometimes, you know, the cliche is follow your heart, but I guess that's, uh, that's what's true. I think at least for being happy, that's the fact. Like maybe maybe following your heart isn't like the thing that's going to make you the most money. Sometimes they're at odds, right? Right. Uh, maybe it's not going to make you a billionaire because you're going to have to do things that your heart detests to be a billionaire. I don't know. It depends per person. Uh, but at least you'll be happy. I mean, oh, like happy in the fulfilled sense too, not in the like excited or, you know, you just bought something on Amazon and now you're happy type of feeling, but more right. like more like, 
at the end of a long, tiring day, you're like, that was a good day. Like, even though I feel very tired, I feel like that's happiness, right? Totally. Totally satisfied. All right. We should satisfy this, uh, this year talk. Cause this was, uh, this was awesome. Very inspiring. Totally. Yeah. I think the, you know, for most people, I think the solution is to learn not to reason as much. And people don't like hearing that because when you trust your gut, you're, you're guaranteed signing up for a nonlinear life. You think Joe Rogan knew that he'd sell his thing for a hundred million dollars to Spotify? Not a chance in hell. No, no idea. way. No idea. No that's idea. exactly what he said. He that's, said the, mm-hmm. that's the thing. In life, most of the great things and most of the worst things you cannot predict. So because they're nonlinear, you cannot plan for them. But rather than that producing anxiety, that has to produce excitement and trust. That's where that that's why all these mystics talk about uh fearless faith and in proportion to what you believe, it shall be done unto you. It's that's why that faith mind it says is so important. It's coming. You just don't know when, or you, you just don't know how. Yeah. So if you can adopt that mindset that the prayers have already been answered, mm. that is the ideal state every day. Yeah. And I don't think you even need that faith. Just keep doing what you love. Like you don't need to have faith in it unless like that helps you do what you want to do. Right. Like, You can be like, oh, well, this, like, that's Joe Rogan in the beginning. Like, this isn't ever going to be successful. This is just, like, have you seen some of the early episodes? (laughs) Like, they're so bad. Like, if you ever want to see, like, how success happens, look, watch the first, like, 100 episodes of the Joe Rogan podcast. Like, they're just all over the place, ridiculous, bad editing. He says all sorts of incriminating things. Like, it's amazing that he even made it out of that (laughs) stage. But, like... You listen back and you're like, oh, I see what he's saying. Like he was literally just hanging out with his friends and talking shit and that's it. And like, because he just did it every day and because he had, um, and I think this is an important point to make. He had a natural aptitude for it. So he's like a comedian. He's a uh, communicator. He has a natural aptitude and the right kind of temperament during a time when no one thought podcasts would be anything. Everyone thought podcasts were, you know, a joke that somebody would do in their basement just for fun for their friends and yeah. now it's like people make multi-million dollar deals over a podcast which is free it's insane and this is just the beginning i think um, yeah and with this technology we have like you could get like a crappy 80 dollars mic and a 30 dollars webcam and attach it to your computer and you have a podcast that's it like it doesn't matter that much. If your content's good, people will listen to it. You know, maybe it won't be amazing production value and you won't get a million subscribers, but like, do you need a million subscribers in the beginning? Like when you don't know what you're talking about? Right. Not really. It's a, it's a process. So I hope everybody listening to this gets inspired to, to do that work that is tough, but they also like. Right. I feel like that's the, that's the perfect balance.